Hey everyone, and welcome to the New Visionary Podcast, a podcast for artists who are ready to reach greater heights in their art careers. I'm your host, Victoria J. Fry, founder of Visionary Art Collective and New Visionary Magazine. Join me for inspiring conversations with some of the most inspirational visionaries in today's art world. Let's jump in. Hey, beautiful souls, and welcome back. Today, we are diving in with Beth Pickens, an amazing Los Angeles-based author and arts consultant. I am so excited for today's conversation. Welcome, Beth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here, and I'm truly like beyond thrilled to have you on the podcast and just to learn more about your journey as an author, as an arts consultant. And just dive into all the wonderful things you're doing for artists in the art community. So I would love to begin by dialing it back a little bit, as I always say on the podcast, and just getting a sense of your journey as an author and as a writer and how that kind of evolved over time and what inspired you to write specifically books that would empower um, and, and provide guidance for artists. Well, actually, my journey writing books begins in third grade when I would stay in from recess and write and illustrate my first book, The Runaway Guinea Pig. That that manuscript has been lost to time. It was never published. But I was really into the idea of like being um, a kid author. <laughs> then fast forward many years, um, a novel I never did anything with that I wrote during National Novel Writing Month. Um, but my actual first published book was called um, Your Art Will Save Your Life. And this came out in 2018 on Feminist Press. And the impetus of that book was a pamphlet that I wrote in response to the artists around me catastrophizing like everyone else after the 2016 presidential election. I wrote a pamphlet uh, sort of responding to the artists around me who were saying things like, I need to do something more important than art. Uh, people were in crisis. People, we were freaking out, especially that first hundred days after Trump was in office, or even before we knew before he was in office. It felt like the world was falling apart because it was. And the artists in my life were just like, I have to quit making art and like go to law school or go into public policy or do all these different things. And I understood the sentiment, but my positionality as a person who relies on art and I have my entire life to actually like want to belong to the planet. I felt very strongly like, no, 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 your art is going to be crucial for everybody around you and it's going to keep you going. So I wrote this pamphlet called Making Art During Fascism. And my very longtime friend and collaborator, the writer Michelle T, was at the time editing an imprint at Feminist Press and said, would you like to expand that pamphlet into a short book of under 100 pages? And I was like, sure, I bet I can do that. And so <laughs> I got my first book deal. I got a $750 advance. And in between writing like 300 grants, I wrote that book. And artists really responded well to it. And after I published that book and I had a little book tour, I started to think like, oh, it'd be great to write a longer book that that is sort of an accumulation reflection of everything that I do professionally with artists, all the wisdom I've collected with and from them and have that be an offering to any artist who wants to read it. So I put together a proposal and um, pitched it to my now agent, Laura Lee Mattingly at Present Perfect, 
And I said, you know, I wrote this first book, but I have an idea for a longer self-help book for artists that goes through sort of the biggest themes that come up in artists' lives, the biggest stumbling blocks or problems that I find they encounter. And I'd like to unpack them in book form. So she helped me put together a proposal. We sold it to Chronicle. And then my book, Make Your Art No Matter What, came out in 2021 in midst of the pandemic, (laughs) although it was written before the pandemic. So it has no trace of the pandemic in the manuscript. And so, yeah, that book came out in 2021. So now I have two books out in the world, many books destroyed or hidden from view that will never see the light of day. And now I'm working on actually a deck, like a a text-based deck for Chronicle that will come out. I actually don't know when it's going to come out. I have to write it right now, the text for it. And it's going to be more of my same old, same old, which is advice for artists. Amazing. Thank you so much for providing us with that insight and just a deeper dive into your journey as a writer. You know, Make Your Art No Matter What is, I think, one of the best books for artists out there. It's a book that was so special for me on my journey as an artist and as an artpreneur. And as you know, we read it during the um, with the VAC book club, and it was celebrated by every artist in that book club. It made such an impact. And I think one thing that really stood out to me was like your voice that came through as I was reading it felt so genuine. I could really feel and sense how much you love artists, how much you love art, what it has meant to you and how it it has um, influenced and just kind of shaped your life. And so it was just a beautiful read. And I left with so many nuggets of wisdom. But I think the biggest takeaway from me and the chapter that resonated with me the most, and I would say many of the artists in the book club, was the chapter on kind of setting guidelines and parameters for your practice in terms of like, stop negotiating and compromising with yourself. Like we all have a million things to do. (laughs) This isn't exactly what you wrote, but this was that my takeaway was kind of like, we all lead these busy lives, but you've got to prioritize making the work. It has to be something that you make time for. You're not always going to just have that time available, but it's about prioritizing the work. And it was such a valuable reminder for me as a painter to actively set aside time and to really create that consistent schedule for making rather than waiting for these hours to magically appear. And it's like, even though I already kind of knew that, the way that you wrote that part of the book hit home for me in a way that I just needed to hear at that time. So I'd love to dive in a little bit more in terms of, or what you would kind of recommend to artists who are really struggling with the logistics of making their work when it's part, one aspect of their very busy lives. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's probably, that probably came through in the first chapter, which is on time because time, I ordered it beginning with time. Because kind of like first things first, an artist has to make their work. And the world, including you as an artist, will only take you away from your practice. Like the world only wants to take you away from it. And so does the artist, their own anxieties and fears and avoidance that comes from a lot of real legitimate places and from just like fear. And so first things first, making one's art has to be a priority. And the way we prioritize things is by putting them in front of other things. We actually put them high at the top of the list of what gets time and attention and resource and focus. And not just any time, but good time, right? Like you as a painter, 
you and for any listener, whatever discipline a person is in, there's different qualities of time during the day. So for me, writing books, for example, I I could make myself write at different times of the day, but the highest quality time for me was always morning. And so if I needed to, in order to prioritize writing this manuscript, I had to block everything else out. And that means saying no to things so I could say yes to that. And that's going to be true for all artists too. You will have to say no to things and people and things that are important, things that are unimportant, things you want to do, things you don't want to do in order to say yes to your practice. There's more to do in modernity than we have time to do. There's just more. There's always going to be more demands and requests on your time and energy and focus than any person will have the capacity to do. And that's just that's just true. No matter how curious or incurious a person is, there's simply more. And so we have to make choices about how do we want to how do we want to spend our time in our lives? And, um, you know, I love that. The, a quote that I have in my book that I love about time is how you, Annie Dillard, how you spend your, I'm not getting the phrase exactly, but how we spend our days is how we spend our life, right? So the premise of my work with artists is that you are people who are fundamentally different than me and the rest of the world. Everybody benefits from creative exploration, but I find that artists are people who actually require art making as a way to have a fully realized life. And for an artist, the practice, not necessarily the career, what you do with it, but the practice of making the work is an essential way that you take care of yourself. And when artists aren't making their work, their life quality and their mental health deteriorates. I see it all the time. And as soon as an artist returns to their practice, they feel better. Their life quality gets better. Everything feels more manageable and they feel more like themselves. So, and that's just different than the rest of the world. And I think artists, because they tend to know a lot, a lot of other artists, they think everybody's like that. And it's not true. Like, I don't have to do creative things. I have, I, I lack that compulsion. I don't have that need that artists have, but I really see it in artists. So just like you have to make time to eat, you have to make time to do things for your body, you have to drink water, you have to brush your teeth, all these things we have to do to take care of ourselves. Artists have this additional one, you have to make time for your practice. And so that means saying no to other things sometimes, often. Yes, yes. It's such a powerful reminder. And, you know, the way that you're speaking about it now and how you spoke about it, how you wrote about it in the book, I just think it's, like I said, it really hit home for me because it's very easy to find excuses to not create. And when I really look into where that's coming from, it usually is fear-based. And I think a lot of artists struggle with this where it's like, there's so many fears. It's like, for me, I think a lot of it is, you know, if I only have this window of time to create, like, what if I don't produce, what if it doesn't yield any worthwhile results, you know? And and then there's like a fear of that or a fear of, okay, well, what happens when I do create something really great? Do I go out and show it? Do I want to hang on to it? Like what, they, they, I think every step of the creative process, there are fears that arise. And I've come to realize, which you emphasize in the book, it's just a focus on making the work because everything else will fall into place. But if you're not making the work, your life will suffer. And I also think that for artists, I can speak for myself. <laughs> I don't always remember that until I haven't created in like three weeks. And then I'm like, oh, I'm not feeling great or I feel kind of pent up or I just feel like a little off kilter and I can't quite put my finger on it. 
Danielle Krissa, aka The Jealous Curator, uh, she came and spoke with our book club as well. And she said something funny how when she's like, you know, frustrated or just kind of in a mood, her husband will often ask her, like, I think you just need to go to the studio or we'll say to her, like, you just need to go to the studio and make something. How long has it been since you've been in the studio? Because I can like feel mm-hmm. that that's what you need to do. So I oh, appreciate yeah, that. That's remi- real. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and so I appreciate the reminder, but there were other parts of the book that were also really powerful. I mean, the book in its entirety, I think was so beautifully written, so thoughtful and just provided such great advice. And another part that really stood out to me uh, that I was hoping you could speak more on um, was where you talk about the importance of community and how it, just as important as it is to spend that time creating, we also, uh, we can't just create in a vacuum. Like we, it's so essential to our growth as artists and as creatives to surround ourselves with fellow artists. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on that too. I hypothesize in my first book (laughs) that an artist's three basic needs are one, making your work, two, consuming work, and three, having a community of artists who want good things for themselves and one another. I think other artists are the biggest resource in an artist's life. More than anything, your community of artists can provide anything and everything that you need, whether it's money or help or validation or support. It all comes from community. So investing in being a part of of creative communities that want good things for themselves and one another is crucial. That's just how relationships are how everything happens. And you and two other people, it only takes three people to make any big thing happen. So for artists who feel, for example, frustrated, like they don't know how to permeate art worlds or they don't know how to have their work go out into the world. It's like most art cultures that are really meaningful start with artists doing things for themselves and with one another and then inviting people in. Artists run spaces, artists run initiatives, artists projects, artists doing things together is what, that's how all of our culture manifests. It's not like a museum doesn't have an idea. It's like it comes from the grassroots and, and goes upward. And so it's crucial that artists invest in. And when I say invest in a community, it means taking time to find your people wherever you are, both online and disparate parts of the world, and crucially in your local geographic community, finding your people. And that takes time when we move or when a phase of life happens or um, when a person's practice is growing or changing. It takes time to find your people in, in artist communities. But it's worth it because investing in a creative community will give you back everything you need. So I think sometimes people get really stuck on the idea that like it's wrong to rely on relationships for things, that that's somehow nepotism or something bad or injurious. But actually, like that's how everything happens. It just happens through proximity to one another. So a reason artists like to live in cities, for example, is because there's a ton of other artists and there's a lot happening. And simply by being in proximity to something, you get opportunities simply because you were at a party and talked to a person and then this thing happened and this happened and this happened. It's just proximity to one another and being in community, being in the soup with one another. So wherever you are, spending the time, the, however long it takes to find your people and then invest in those relationships. Like how do you make new artist friends? I always say, just ask to trade studio visits. Just start with being a fan. Like, I really like your work. Can I come talk to you about it? 
a great way into meeting an artist is just through their work. It's like go to their studio and invite them to yours. And studio visits, I mean, you're a painter, so you are familiar with studio visits. Studio visits can happen for all disciplines. It's something that's really entrenched in the visual art world. But I like to tell all of my clients across discipline, think about a studio visit. It doesn't have to happen in a physical studio. It can be online. It can be in a cafe. It can be in an office. It could be anywhere. And a studio visit is just like, I'm going into your world to learn about your art and ask you questions and get to know you that way. And then I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. It's like such a fast track to intimacy between artists, I think, like going to each other's studios and just talking about the work together. So community, 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 find artist friends, find your people. Yes, yes. And I, you can do that, like, as, as you're saying, wherever you live, like whether it's a big city, I mean, I think it's probably a little bit easier in a big city, but even if you're in a small town, it's just, and it doesn't always have to be, I think, like, a huge group of people. If you just have a few core artist friends that you can meet with, I think it helps for so many things. Like, I think it can actually help with the creation of your work, because these are people you can get feedback from, and that you can give feedback to regarding the work itself, which is tremendously valuable. Also accountability. And then also just kind of like sharing the challenges and also, you know, we'll say the rose and the thorns that come with being an artist, the glows and the grows, because there are amazing moments in an artist's career. And there are also really tough moments. So, and not everyone understands, like even your partner, right? If they're not an artist, they can support you and they can empathize with you, but they might not truly know because they're not living that experience. So I think for many reasons, I would agree community is essential. And I just really appreciated you honing in on that in the book. It's something that can get lost. Like I often share that when I graduated from art school, I went years before I joined and sort of found my own artist community And in that time, I didn't see it as much as I do now, but I can really see that my work was suffering. And I was just sort of suffering creatively because I was completely disconnected from an artist community. So it is, it's huge. I also wanted to ask you about your work as an arts consultant, because in addition to these amazing books that you've written that are so helpful, um, I know that you also work closely with artists to support and guide them through their art careers. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into that and what has been like the most rewarding part of it for you. Mm, I came, so my background is in counseling psychology. I went to graduate school to become a therapist and I wasn't really sure I was working full time and in graduate school. And I wasn't exactly sure like what, what, what am I going to do with this degree? Like, I know I want to provide therapy in some context or get a job that uses this degree. I moved to San Francisco after I finished grad school. I quit my full-time job and moved with my master's degree um, in a buck. It's in a Tupperware somewhere, I think, in my garage now. Um, But I had this really good training in counseling psychology. And it would be years before I would use it. And I felt shame and guilt all the time. Like, I have all the student loan debt and I'm not, quote unquote, using my degree. But what I did was almost immediately, I left the nonprofit world that I had been working in. When I, I was the director of a breast cancer program in San Francisco. And I knew what I wanted to do was just work in the arts. And I didn't know what that could look like or be like, but I knew I just wanted to be surrounded by artists working for and with artists. So while I was working full-time as the director of this breast cancer program, I asked someone to be my mentor to teach me how to raise money for queer arts. Um, I moved to San Francisco to be close to a giant queer arts community. Like, that's why I was there. 
And so he agreed to mentor me and he started to teach me about how funding worked uh, in the art world and how he was able to raise so much money for queer artist organizations and individual artists. So I quit my full-time job and I immediately pivoted working in the arts as a grant writer. Um, I became the managing director of a couple of different small queer arts nonprofits. I eventually worked in a museum. I did a lot of different thing, things in the arts. One of the things I did was I was managing director of a queer literary nonprofit uh, called Radar Productions. And during my time there, we started and ran for five years a queer writer's retreat in the uh, Mayan Riviera in Mexico in this town called Acumal. So we would bring all these queer artists down. They'd work on their books and their projects for about 10 days. And the very first year that we were there, and I was the person who did all the management. I like schlepped people to and from the airport. I did all the cooking and shopping and all the organizing and spreadsheet stuff and helped raise all the money for it. Uh, and then my collaborators, my friend Michelle T and my ex-wife Allie Liebegott, they were there as sort of like the writers in residence, leading conversations and giving mentorship to the writers there. And every night we would have a communal dinner and I would cook dinner and they would talk about issues in their manuscripts and questions they had about like publishing and finding an agent and how do you get to have a book deal, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of questions that people had every night over dinner were things that had to do with like self-esteem and self-efficacy, taking up space, asking for things, um, believing in oneself, imposterism, stuff that I was like, oh, these are all counseling issues. Like every night I, at dinner, I think like, I think I could talk to artists through these problems. Like I know the art world stuff, but I have this counseling background to address the rest of it. So it was actually at the first year of this retreat back in 2009 that I had the idea of doing individual consultation for artists that would bring together this training with all of my work expertise. And so within a year, I started, I kind of launched it as like a, a side hustle to all the millions of other jobs I was doing. And I started telling artists around the Bay Area, like I'm doing this one-to-one -one consultation that brings my counseling training with all of the work that you know me for in the art world to help you navigate your career, the internal stuff and the external stuff. And that's how I got started it, back in 2010. And I've been doing that ever since. And then starting in 2013, I started working for myself completely. Um, I left my museum job that I despised and I started working for myself and I've been self-employed ever since doing lots of other things. But the basis of my work week is my one-to-one -one consultation practice. I see about 15 to 25 clients a week. Amazing. Amazing. It's such powerful work. And it's, it's so true in that, like the, it's the internal and it's the external because I do one-to-ones as well, but I always tell artists, like, you can have all of the practical tools and strategies and skills, but if you are experiencing these limiting beliefs over and over again, or you don't really feel that you could do it, or you're sort of holding yourself back, perhaps without knowing, the skills and the strategies and the tools aren't going to amount to anything. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think it's... Victoria, are you an earth sign? Are you Capricorn? <laughs> no, I'm actually air. I'm Libra and I'm triple Libra. Like all my... You're a triple Libra? Yeah, my big... That's it's, wild. It's, it sounds crazy, but it's been confirmed by multiple astrologers. Yeah. Um, but it's... Are you sensing an, like an earthly energy? <laughs> yeah, I wonder where it just... I mean, this okay. is a different podcast, but I'm like, where's your Mercury. Where's your Mars? Where's your Mercury? You've got some, the, just the, the, well, the, the fact of what you've built around your practice is so earth sign. I, you know, I really appreciate that actually, because I'm very much air, like, and most of my, <laughs> most of my chart 
is air with like a little bit of water, but I there's barely any earth in there, which oh, is funny. So but wait, what's your sign? And then we'll cut back. I'm a Oh my gosh, I love Capricorns. I'm That's a walking so- spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I swear, every Capricorn I've ever met has been, and I mean this in the best way because I think it's really admirable, like very organized and go ahead and, and headstrong and just like, I think those are amazing qualities to possess. So yeah. amazing. Yeah. But I think that's amazing work that you've done. I can't even imagine how many artists you've worked with over the years. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Like I, yeah, so, so many. And you'd ask like what, what's sort of the most rewarding thing. It's like, it's, it's definitely seeing my clients get the things they want, like publishing the book or having this big exhibition or getting a gallery, like whatever their material goals are, that's one. But the real thing is when we work together for them to enjoy it in real time. Because a thing I've learned along the process over the past 13 years is I really think it's easier for an artist to get the external reward than to enjoy it in real time. Mm. Right. Like, so like a person, you know, cause the external things can't do anything for our interior. Like you feel a high after you get a grant or after you sell a painting or something. And then we return to our set point and mm-hmm. it's really difficult to show up for the good things as they're happening. And I've watched so many artists get the thing they coveted and then immediately their eyes went to the next goal and they couldn't even feel that thing anymore. And to me, that felt like a tragedy because I was like, but what about your life while it's happening? So a lot of what I do with my clients now is we're focusing on external things are good for external matters, but the spiritual interior is an inside job. And that your practice, you in relationship to you as an artist and making your work because you deserve to, you deserve to have a good, fully realized life and that your spiritual integrity and how you feel about yourself matters because you're, you're, you are the longest relationship you will ever have. That if we cultivate that, then the external stuff can be really good for what it's for, like material rewards, building a career, having the bells and whistles and the gifts and prizes of the world. Those are great, but they do external things. So I'm really big on this internal external that they have to happen at the same time. Yes. And it makes so much sense too, because I think with our art, we often feel that it, I mean, it is in a way, I mean, it is an extension ultimately of who we are. And I think that's why it can feel so vulnerable when we are submitting our work or just submitting in general to like grants or residencies, any kind of opportunity, you know, that artists are interested in it can feel so vulnerable, just that the process of actually putting yourself out there. But then like what you're saying, if we get that thing, it like validates us for a second. um, And then we go right back to how we usually are. Or on the other side of it, if we don't get that thing, we can often feel totally crushed. Like not just our work is being, you know, rejected, but like we are being rejected because we created it and it's part of who we are. It's really hard to navigate. I think as I've been curating and jurying more, it's helped me to actually understand more because I'm on both sides. I'm a painter submitting and putting my work out there, but I'm also, um, I've stepped into more of a curatorial role over the past few years. And actually being on the other side has helped tremendously because I see now how hard these decisions are. And it is so, so difficult um, from the curator's perspective to have to narrow down hundreds, if not thousands of submissions. And so now actually when I'm rejected as an artist, 
I don't take it personally. You at take it all. a lot less personally. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. way that I used to, because I'm like, okay, that was probably a really tough decision. Um, but I love what you're saying. And I think this is such an important thing to remember that we really have to cultivate the internal and the external. We can't rely on, you know, these gatekeepers, so to speak, to validate uh, our sense of worth or our value as artists or just as individuals. That, let the external things do what they're good for. Like money is important. It's not going to change how you feel about yourself as a person, or at least not for more than a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what advice would you give to an artist who is really working on strengthening their relationship with themselves? Having whatever a studio practice is to you, whatever discipline it is, like whether it's your writing hours, or your painting hours, or um, renting studio time in a dance studio, but like just being with yourself in your practice and noticing the thoughts, the fearful thoughts of like, what am I doing? This is a waste of time. What if this isn't good? I, I should, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be doing something else and staying with it anyway, persevering through the um, kind of critical brain and all of the mean, toxic, critical thoughts that tell you that this is all for naught, which happens to every artist every day, by the way, it's like, nobody's alone with that kind of thinking, but continuing to keep showing up for your practice not necessarily even a project, but just your practice. I think that strengthens the relationship an artist has with themselves as an artist. Mm -hmm. Simply giving it time and focus, saying yes to it, saying no to things to say yes to that. It's a self-esteem building act. And the more time an artist can spend prioritizing the actual practice, being with the materials, whatever your materials are, it's you are showing yourself in real time, like I matter, my well-being matters. And then to go off of that even further, following your desire in the studio and noticing when your brain is like, well, I should do this or this would sell or this feels like I know who will like this. But actually going into the territory of like, what's just your desire? What do you feel like doing? Even if it goes nowhere, because of course, like, you know, this as a painter, I'm sure you've experienced this a million times that whatever you do that you think, what am I doing this for? It's taking you somewhere. It's like showing trust in the self that if I follow my thoughts, if I follow the desire, if I follow wherever I'm leading myself, it's going somewhere, even if I don't know where it is in the moment. But it, it's so it's like trusting yourself and allowing something to play out over time in the studio, whatever you're making right now that you think, well, this isn't going anywhere. It, you might be working something out that's going to lead you somewhere. So it's like trusting your intuition, your gut, your desire, your curiosity in the studio, I think is another um, kind of spiritual strengthening practice. Yes. Yes. It, I love that. And I think that's really powerful advice. And it also just reminds me that like when we, when we are engaged in our practice in a really authentic way that you're describing, like we're also just practicing being present. Like it's the most beautiful way to be present with yourself and, and with your creativity. And I love, really love that you are referring to making art as a form of self-care, which I forget a lot, but it is also part of like a self-care routine. Like it's just part of it. And I, I really do forget that all the time. So the first time you mentioned it in this conversation, I'm like, Oh yeah, it it is part of self care. Yeah, like I have to yeah. remember that, um, and it isn't yeah. always right. Like it can be weaponized, a per yeah. or a person could be under like an extreme deadline. So I, I actually think like 
in anybody's practice, however much of it's monetized or professionalized or how many deadlines you have, it's really useful, useful for an artist to keep like kind of a corner of their practice untouched by the outside world. That is just you in relationship to you, whether it's a practice or a project that like, it's not meant for anybody yet, if ever. So that the rest of the work that sometimes doesn't feel like it's taking care of you, but rather like, I got to get this out or somebody's waiting for this, or I hate this, but now I have to finish it because somebody's waiting for it. Having a part of your practice, a little corner that is just about you with you, that's where your practice can be a way you take care of yourself. Yes. Yes. I love that. And I'm, I've been leaning into that a little bit more lately too. I think it's really important that we do have, I think I would say it's essential to have part of your practice that really is just for you and like nothing, something might come of it. Like it might give you an idea for a new body of work or, or something cool, but even if it leads to nothing and it's just like, I'm painting this tree because it feels good to paint this tree right Mm -hmm. now. And this is what I feel like doing in this moment. And that's going to bring me joy. That is also like incredibly valuable. And sometimes I forget that. I think sometimes we forget that as artists, that there can be, in addition to like all the amazing goals that we have as artists to sell our work and to work with galleries and um, all of these really beautiful, big things that we're dreaming of, sometimes just literally painting or writing or something that might feel silly, but it is totally unrelated just because that's what you enjoy doing can actually be more rewarding than anything else. Mm -hmm. What's that looked like for you recently? Is it painting or have you been exploring other materials or ways of making? Yeah, I I actually, I spoke a little bit about this in a solo episode that I recently did where I, in addition, I'm a landscape painter, but in addition to my landscapes, I love making these like really whimsical and I don't do them very often, but when I feel like doing them, I just do, I just paint them. Like these really whimsical, almost like old fairy tale illustrations, they just like make me happy. And, you know, I just like give myself that freedom. And half the time I don't even share them, but like it just feels good. But what I'm moving into now is I just want to start doing what I'm calling expressions, where I just have a little like watercolor sketchbook and I have like the you know, a handheld tin of like six watercolors in a little tray. And I just bring it around where I go and just do a little, you know, I capture the expression of something in like maybe 30 seconds. And I intentionally, maybe you'll be proud of this. I intentionally bought a sketchbook that you cannot, well, I guess technically you can rip out the pages, but it would like destroy the whole book. So you're not, you're not going to rip out the pages because it's like a nice leather bound watercolor sketchbook and it's not spiral. I usually do spiral because I can just tear out whatever it is I don't like and either paint over it or repurpose it or let's be honest, like throw it <laughs> throw it away. Um, and I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I'm like everything that we create is valuable. And I think that for all of us as artists, when we look back and we I want to be in my 90s if I'm lucky enough to live that long and like sifting through piles of old work. So I just thought like if I intentionally get a a really nice book that I cannot remove the pages, that's going to be good for me because it's going to force me to be okay with whatever it is I created instead of like, nope, isn't good enough, tear it out and on to the next. So I think it's also part of it is like learning about yourself and figuring out what, I don't know, like what is the healthiest kind of approach for you? And identifying, like being honest with yourself. Like I have perfectionist tendencies. So I know that for me, this is going to be a really good practice in 
not being able to lean into those perfectionist tendencies. It's like, it's like the antidote really. Yeah. Oh, that's really beautiful. I love that. You know, when you're thinking about being in, in your most elder years, like luxuriating in your own archive, when you think about archives for writers, for example, the advantage of handwriting versus being on your computer is you will not sit there and self edit. And what's more interesting than looking at a writer's archive and seeing the live editing, seeing what was crossed out, what didn't make it into the manuscript. And like, if we didn't have that, then what would we have? If we couldn't see the fullness, the totality, if we're just seeing the edited version of everything, it would just feel like the material culture replicates digital culture. And that makes me want to (laughs) die. Yeah. Because then it's like, where's the artistry? Like, yeah. Where's the personhood? Where's the, like, if everything's just edited all the time, then we're not seeing the fullness of anything. I love that. I I think that's also a really great reminder. I know I, it's funny when you're creating something, you want it to be perfect. I mean, we all, I think, strive for that in our practice. There are far more artists that I know or work with who have these perfectionist tendencies Mm -hmm. and I too struggle with it. But then like, I found this really old watercolor sketchbook from maybe seven or eight years ago. And I mean, the paintings in there, I was like totally cringing. They were, I thought they were really good at the time, but they're just, you know, I was cringing, but I was also like, had all the warm and fuzzies as I was flipping Mm. through it. And just remembering like, there was something very sweet about these, like very amateur, to me, they felt like these very amateur sort of little paintings in this book, but I'm like, I'm so happy I kept this and I'm so happy Mm -hmm. that I can look back on this. And also I think it's beautiful to look back and see your growth, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. I, I wanted to ask you before we start to wrap up this amazing conversation, what advice would you give to a lot of our listeners are emerging artists who are just starting to build their art careers? What advice would you give to emerging artists who are, you know, maybe wanting to just get their work out there a little bit more and um, perhaps expand their collector base or get their work into galleries? What would you recommend? Two, two things in this order. One, make art, make more art, make more art, make more art. Give your practice give your, the disciplines in which you work, give it as much time as you are able. Like really let yourself, let your projects, let your skill, let your craft grow. Let your voice become itself in the studio. So start with make your work and then keep going, keep going, keep going. Then ask for everything relentlessly. I love that. Oh, so good. Beth, thank you so much. This was amazing. It's my and I, pleasure. I love paint. I mean, I love all artists. I don't discriminate, <laughs> but I do have a very tender place in my heart for painters. I do love painters oh. very much. So it's so nice to be with a painter for this period of time. I'm so happy. I mean, I'm a little biased, but painter, I love painters too. They're the best. Yeah. And I, I'm just so appreciative of you taking the time to share this with us. And it's wonderful to learn more about your journey and um, for anyone listening, you can learn more about Beth and go to her website, Instagram, Beth, I'll include all of that information in the show notes. Yeah, just really grateful that you joined us today. Thank you so much. And, it's uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. And for everyone tuning in, we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in and supporting our platform. To learn more about New Visionary Magazine, head over to visionaryartcollective.com slash magazine. You can order individual copies on Amazon or subscribe annually to digital issues. 
We also have opportunities to get featured in the magazine, so be sure to join our newsletter and follow us on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or tag us on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.